0: The year is 1596, and Sir John Harrington, the godson of Queen Elizabeth I and a royal courtier, has just invented the first water closet, giving the Elizabethans the chance to go to a proper toilet for the first time. That is, incidentally, why it's suggested the toilet is called the John in the United States. What John Harrington did, though, at that time in 1596, is set up a paradigm. Little did he know how this paradigm would play out over the centuries to come, until it led to a discussion about why men continue to stand up to do the toilet in toilets which are designed to be sat down on. My name is Colin Campbell, and you're listening to Nothing But The Tooth, the Campbell Academy podcast where we explore atypical pathways to success and some of the characteristics that might lead towards that. The word paradigm is a fascinating word, not least because it's so difficult to spell. But I first came across it um, when I read The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People by Stephen Covey, where he discusses personal paradigms, individual people and how they interact with win-win, win-lose, lose-win relationships and contract discussions and disputes. But the concept of the paradigm seemed to get deep inside me and seemed to infect me with an interest, a sort of curiosity into why people get stuck in belief systems and stuck in ways that they don't seem to be able to get out of even though it's bad for them. Initially, a paradigm was described in scientific terms. A huge change in the culture or the understanding of the belief Either related to the scientific method where people started to adopt a position where they would be evidence-based or for example the theory of evolution which was seen as being one of the original huge paradigms where people moved away from the creation model to the evolutionary model but more and more as culture has developed paradigms are seen at smaller and smaller levels and i believe the ability to see a paradigm and to shift a paradigm is one of the things that sets people apart who become independently successful. Looking back at some of the guys that we've already spoken to on this podcast, it's easy to see how that rationale applies. If I look at Gurmit Samra, he existed in a paradigm where people of his ethnicity never made it into broadcasting, never made it into filmmaking. He was never able to see someone like him do the things that he did. And so instead of accepting that, accepting the paradigm, he broke it. And then he becomes the conduit, he becomes the inspiration for other people to come behind him. And so while this might seem straightforward and simple, in its description, it's actually fundamental. And I actually believe that the ability to break a paradigm is something that we can learn, not something that we're born with. I think the ability to first see the belief system and see the paradigm And then to decide to do something different, something better, something that might make a change, is a choice. It's not something that's set in stone, and it's not something that's genetically coded. And so, I'd like to give you three examples of paradigms which have been broken by individual people in different areas of work. The first one I want to talk about is a physician in the United States in the 1960s called Jay Freire. By all accounts, Jay Freirich was quite a disagreeable man. And being disagreeable is one of the things which enables you to break paradigms or to have the motivation to break paradigms. So when I talk about disagreeability, which we'll discuss in much more detail in a podcast later in this series of description and discussion of people who become successful in spite of other things, then disagreeability needs to be understood as someone who doesn't necessarily need the approval of anyone else, but understands that that they are on a quest or a mission which is right, as far as their belief systems tell them. And so J. Freyrich, who came from very humble beginnings as an immigrant um, and very, very poor background, made it to medical school and became a physician in the United States. And then in the 1960s found himself working in childhood leukemia wards, which at that time were places of horror and desolation and despair. So if you understand anything about leukemia, and particularly in childhood leukemia, what you understand is that that disease wrecks the blood and the cellular blood system of the patients that it affects. And one of the main things that happens is that people, patients, children who have the disease, they can't clot And there is no way, or there was no way in the 1960s, of reversing that. And so your typical leukemia ward would be full of children who might bleed to death from a nosebleed in front of the hospital staff, unable to stop them from bleeding because how the cancerous disease had affected their system. And Freireich was introduced to this. At that time, we were in the early stages of the development of chemotherapy, which was quite a counterintuitive drug, using something that was horrendously poisonous to try to kill the cancer cell and effectively sterilize the blood to allow the patient to recover and grow back healthy cells. The use of chemotherapeutic medication was seen to be highly toxic and highly dangerous and so under no circumstances would anybody be given more than but the smallest dose of chemotherapy and of a single drug. And so enter Jay Fryrich who worked on the ward and saw the children dying and decided that he had to go harder and bigger to try to beat the disease. Now, the story around how Jay freirich did that is quite distressing because he was a disagreeable man. And so, in his experimentation of using multiple drug chemotherapy in the treatment of leukaemia, he killed several children, or even many children, who died in front of him because they were overdosed or they simply weren't helped. He used children on that ward as a guinea pig. But in J. Fryerich's mind, they were all dying anyway, and he was trying to see the longer term and trying to create something for the greater good, regardless of how we think about his ethics or the fact that he would have no opportunity to do that now. When we look back now to see how cancer treatment and leukemia treatment has developed in children, we understand that whether we like it or not, J. Fryerich was the godfather of what we have now. And in today's society in the Western world, Childhood leukaemia has a 90% cure rate using multiple drug chemotherapy as a result of the work that was started by Jay Freirich in the United States in the 1960s. So what Jay Freirich did is he took the paradigm and the paradigm was we go very slowly, we go very easily, we change by evolution over a long period of time. We don't give high dose chemotherapy to children and we never ever give multiple drug chemotherapy to children because we now have a medical paradigm which says how we do things around here. Jay Frederick refused to accept that and for all the millions and millions of people who've been treated now on the basis of what Jay Frederick did and the people who have survived and gone on to live long, fulfilling and normal lives, I think they'd probably be quite grateful for the fact that he saw a paradigm and shot it in half. You can describe the paradigm model in any aspect of your life. We could probably take it down to the personal level, to the destructive behaviours that all of us seem to undertake time and time again, whatever they might be. But we can also apply it to people that become successful in business. And probably a really good example of that would be James Dyson, the guy who made the Hoover. If you look back at the Dyson story, he had an idea of how a vacuum cleaner could be entirely different from that which it was. Now, Dyson was through and through an inventor. And so an inventor's job is by definition to paradigm shift wherever possible. But Dyson believed and believed that there was a better way to change the world with a better vacuum cleaner. And so in the region of 1,500 prototypes later that he built in his house and in his kitchen, Dyson changed the model. At the time, vacuum cleaners in the United Kingdom were called Hoovers, based around the name of the company who first captured the market in vacuum cleaners it's interesting to look now and watch people talk about Dyson's which would seem unthinkable and absolutely unreasonable that someone would break the monopoly of Hoover um, in the United Kingdom because when we look at these markets and we look at first mover opportunities in markets where people enter into a market early and then define the market so carefully and clearly themselves that their own company name becomes synonymous with the product, it becomes almost impossible to break that chain of power. But Dyson was able to do that by breaking the paradigm. Dyson understood that you didn't need a bag in a Hoover, and everybody else had accepted the fact that the design of all Hoovers would have to be done with an internal bag. Dyson changed the paradigm. He changed the belief system, and the rest is history. He went on to invent many different things domestically, that have made things better, not least the airblade taps that we have in the practice. And he did that because he was not prepared to accept the status quo and not prepared to accept the paradigm. But we can look at paradigm shifts in business or we can look at paradigm shifts in medicine, but actually it's a lot bigger than that. I grew up in the west of Scotland, near Glasgow, 25 miles to the west. Now, the west of Scotland in the 1980s was effectively Belfast Light. And for anyone who doesn't understand what that means, it means that we were a smaller, less intense version of the troubles that were happening in Northern Ireland and the fights and the struggles between the Unionists and the Republicans in that country. I was born into Catholicism, brought up a Catholic in a Catholic school. If you don't live in Scotland or the West of Scotland or didn't live there at that time, you might not appreciate quite how segregated Scotland was. You either went to a Catholic school or you went to a Protestant school. There were no other schools. In Scotland, still to this day, as far as I believe, the Catholic bishop has a veto on the appointment of teachers to Catholic schools. So if the Catholic bishop doesn't like the person who's been suggested as the head teacher, perhaps because he's a Protestant, he can veto that against employment law. That's how segregated the West of Scotland was. And so I was brought up a Catholic into that belief system and into that paradigm, and that is a paradigm. And so when we would go out as teenagers at night, we would walk down the street and people would walk towards us, and you would be asked in slang term if you were a Tim or if you were a prod, a Tim being a Catholic, a prod being a Protestant. So there was no get out there. There was no way out of that. You had to answer, and you might as well say what you were. If you did not know the person in front of you and you said you were a prod and he was a prod, he probably knew you weren't and he would inflict some sort of violence upon you because that is why he asked the question. If you said you were a Tim and he was a prod, he would inflict that violence. And if you said you were neither, he would inflict a violence too. And so my nose is bent to the left-hand side as a result of being hit in the face for being a Catholic. And that is a paradigm. So we were brought up into that world where... It was obvious that the Catholics were better if you were a Catholic and obviously the Protestants were better if you were a Protestant. And that seemed entirely normal within our belief systems. When I got to the age of about 16, there was a murder in the west of Scotland in my town. A taxi driver was stabbed through the back of his seat with a long knife. He picked up a fare in town of someone who was drunk and they asked him to go to a remote place to drop him at a farmhouse which didn't exist. And the taxi driver was killed. Sometime after that, The individual who had been charged and then released on a technicality and never convicted of that crime attacked the group of friends that I was with one evening as we walked home from being out. We were attacked then because we were Catholics, not because we were anything else. And so the paradigm persisted. The extraordinary thing though about me is that my father is a Protestant and my mother is a Catholic. And so as far as Scotland goes and the west of Scotland goes, I was effectively mixed-race In Scotland, the paradigm of discrimination is less to do with the color of your skin and more to do with your religious background or your geographical background. And so we would see significant trouble between Indians and Pakistanis, who to us were the same color, and significant trouble between Catholics and Protestants who were to us the same color. And this is the discrimination paradigm. Discrimination is not necessarily related to sex. It's not necessarily related to color. It's not necessarily related to religion. And it's not necessarily related to geography, but it is a paradigm. And so when the curtain comes up and you get to see how ridiculous that is, then you can make a change. For me, the religious paradigm, the Catholic versus Protestant thing, it was always insane because I knew my dad was a good man. I knew he was decent and the same as everybody else. And just because some of my friends at school thought that Protestants had horns and were the enemy and were entirely against everything to do with Catholics, that couldn't be right because my mum and dad had got married, Catholic and Protestant. And so it's important, I think, for us to understand that the ability to see paradigms, whether they be in medicine, or whether they be in business, or whether they be in society, and to be able to change those paradigms if it seems that it is the right thing to do, is perhaps one of the greatest skills we could have. The final example of the paradigm that I wanted to give you was in the news this week. It does seem that we're becoming closer that they were getting closer and closer to the ability to harness energy through nuclear fusion. There have been some false starts in this over the years that I have watched. But in California last week, a startup company was able to create a net increase in energy production from a fusion reaction, which has caused quite some interest in the scientific world. That is a paradigm shift. When we invented the atom bomb in the Manhattan Project in the 1940s, which gave the United States, I guess the Allies, the opportunity to vaporize two cities in Japan at the end of the Second World War. We created nuclear fission and the ability to harness fission, but fission is not without its problems or difficulties. If we were to be able to harness nuclear fusion over the next 10 years, it would entirely and completely change the world. It would utterly change the discussion around climate. It would utterly change the discussion and the monopolies around energy production and it happened because the startup tried to create a fusion reaction in a way that was different to everyone else and so how does that relate to us well if we are looking at people who become successful in any field whether that be religious or political or as societal leaders or in business or personally it's probably worth understanding that most of those people are first able to see the paradigm and secondly, able to shift it. And this is a bit like the curtain going up in a show. Once the curtain goes up, it never comes back down. The ability to look at something differently and to change it for the better is one of the greatest things we could possibly do and perhaps one of the most important things we should teach our children. And so now and again, you'll go into a fancy bar or a restaurant and you'll see a toilet that's made by Thomas Crapper. It's now quite common to have a chain system toilet with an authentic appearance and to say that Thomas Crapper invented the toilet. But Thomas Crapper didn't invent the toilet. John Harrington invented the toilet. But one of the things that happened after John Harrington invented the sit down water closet toilet was that men continued to stand up for liquids and sit down for solids. Now that became a paradigm which exists still to this day. Men who go into public toilets and stand up to pee in urinals do that because they're designed for that. But the sit down toilet is designed to sit down. And so some years ago of a weekend, I was cleaning pee up off my toilet floor as I was splitting the domestic tasks with my wife and I, as I used to do when I was a better man. And I wondered why I was cleaning pee up off the floor when the only person in the house who would pee on the floor was me. And then I realized that this was a paradigm and I realized that I would stand up to pee into a sit down toilet because I realized that somebody else was cleaning it up. And when I realized, that it was me that was cleaning it up, and the best thing I could do would be to sit down and pee. And so I felt like I'd had a eureka moment, and I went to discuss it with my father-in-law at the time, who was a dyed-in-the-wool classical Yorkshireman. I explained to him the situation and why I thought it was probably better that we all sat down on the toilet to do a pee. And his response to me was, I thought you were a man's man. And in that, I realised that the paradigm was right there. The only reason that men stand up to pee in sit-down toilets is because someone else cleans it up. When they realise that they have to clean it up themselves, they start to sit down. There are many ways to break a paradigm, but the first thing to do is to see the paradigm. And I think perhaps for all of us who try to succeed in whatever aspect of our life, to identify a belief system which is not the most effective or efficient or ethical, and then to try and change It's perhaps where we find the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction, and perhaps the greatest progress. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. I hope that that was food for thought. Um, we're really excited about the start of next year because in January, we should have three guests to, to record and, and, to, and to discuss things with. Jordan Murphy, who's a former international Irish rugby player, is coming in to see us. And Colin Burns, my great friend Colin Burns, um, implant surgeon from Scotland and the outgoing or just former chairman of the ITI in the UK, um, has an extraordinary story to tell. They're based around um, illness and wellness and changing your life pattern. And Chris Barrow's in at the end of the month, so I'm going to try and skag him for a podcast as well when he comes in. And we can always chat about good stuff with Chris. But. What I'd like to do is take Chris way back to figure out how he got to where he got to, which I haven't done with him before. And then moving on from that through the year, there are some really amazing people coming in for our peer review who have some stories to tell, which will be quite incredible. And I think in between that time, we will explore the concepts around this, which will allow us to really frame what we want to discuss with the guys who come in to get to the bottom of how they got to where they've got to. And so that's the end of the season this year. We will be back in January time but until then I wish everybody a really happy holiday and um, see you soon thanks